0: Maintenance? What do you call maintenance? I'll fix it. I'm going to fix it. Concentrate it. Maintain it. Maintain control.
1: Maintenance complete.
2: Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to The Maintainers, a blue cap community podcast. I am your co host, David Lee, experienced leader in the industrial space and director over
1: at Traction. I'm here today with Jake Hall. And I'm Jake, the manufacturing millennial. I'm an industry advocate, thought leader, and content creator online. And it's great to be here. And today we have an amazing guest today, Anna Goodman, who's been in the industry for ten years. Anna recently started a new role as the senior mechanical reliability engineer for Celanese, a Fortune 500 company, which is based in Texas as a industrial chemical supplier. So, if you don't know about Celanese, they're Been around since 1918, they have 25 production plants in 11 countries. But before we dive into that, let's do a quick word from our sponsor.
3: This podcast is brought to you by Traction. Traction offers streamlined hardware and software solutions designed to make maintenance more reliable and profitable. Their AI-powered condition monitoring and asset management solution predicts machine failures and unplanned downtime, allowing clients to save an average of $10 million every trimester. It's artificial intelligence quarterbacking your maintenance.
2: Thanks for joining us today, Anna. So first, how are you doing?
0: (laughs) I'm doing great. How about you?
2: Doing outstanding. So if we were to have this conversation today, for example, if you could pick anywhere in the world, where would you like to have this conversation? Uh, what would be your favorite place to be in the summer or maybe a thing to do while we have this interview?
0: I'd say probably, you know, some little cafe, just shooting the breeze. Maybe even in it like a different country like Italy or something like that would be nice. Might not go nice, fancy. Yeah. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I like that. Uh, maybe Venice, right? If we could pick anywhere yeah. on the map, I think I'd point there as well. Uh, yeah. Awesome
1: yeah I could definitely go for for Venice right now, sitting out, you know, drinking a nice cappuccino and mm. having those conversations. So you know, to kick things off with before we go and we talk about you know the industry, I want to talk more about the person. So So tell us a little bit about your background. You've been in the industry for ten years. How did you get started in the industry? Where did you get this inspiration to do what you do today?
0: So that's actually a very uh, interesting story and adventure. My life has been quite an adventure. So I just actually started at a working at a, for a nuclear facility, Honeywell, at their Metropolis site, and that was my very first job at a college, and it was during a lockout of the union and I was an operator for 9 months and then I transitioned to a process engineering role. After that, and then after about 9 months of doing the process engineering role, they decided that they were going to do a lot of upgrades due to an audit that happened From the NRC, the NRC said they had to do a lot of structural updates because they were built in the 50s, they were on a fault line, their tornadoes were prevalent, all that fun stuff, right? So they actually at that time laid off 60% of their workforce to take care of those. And so I was on the the job hunt again, and that's when I landed with DuPont. And I actually worked at their Danisco acquisition even further north in Thompson, Illinois. They have a little sugar plant there that took tree sap, liquors essentially and made the different sugars xylitol lactitol, things like that and i did that for a couple of years as a mechanical integrity quality assurance engineer and then i transitioned to texas mostly to get away from the snow <laughs> and um yeah. so then i worked as a reliability engineer for dupont in orange texas and i did that for a couple of years and then due to some personal reasons decided that i wanted to get to a bigger city so then I started making my way towards Houston and I since then I've worked for a few uh, copolymer, elastomer plants as well as chemical facilities. I've been, I was a contractor for a small time for an inspection company and now I'm, I'm with Selenys.
1: So I love to learn more about your experience. Like when we think of a lot of traditional manufacturing, at least where I'm at in the Midwest, it's it's automotive, right? It's consumer goods, it's automotive. What's been your experience like for, I guess you could say, someone who's not familiar with the chemical industry specifically when it comes to manufacturing? Like what are just some unique things that you've learned over the years working in the chemical industry on the manufacturing side?
0: I mean, I think there are some similarities, but there definitely are some differences. To go down the road of the similarities first, I guess. So safety is definitely the biggest thing that plays a part in everything you do, everything you analyze. Every walk down, every consideration is revolved around safety. Beyond that, there definitely is a a culture of just friendship and camaraderie that I haven't had in any of my other jobs where there's a lot of brother keeper going on, which then ties back into that safety, right? So like a lot of the people that you work with, you can tell that they care not only about making the pounds and getting the product out the door, but they care about the people that they work with and they want to make sure... That what they're doing is, is buy the book and buy the letter so that everybody can walk out the same way they came in. I think those are the big things that keep me coming back every day, you know, and, and getting up every morning. Um, but I mean, outside of that, just ultimately, it's never a dull moment. <laughs> You're always yeah. learning something new. Once you think you have one thing fixed and it's going to be fixed for a while and you move on to the next thing, you might be pulled off on this other thing. And it's very dynamic in that way and very uh, fulfilling in that way as well.
2: Nice. So now it's time for our first segment, Maintainer Mashup.
0: Maintenance required. Listen, I maintain. I maintain myself. Maintain course. Maintain speed. I got to maintain respect.
2: So we'll dive deeper into the equipment management and the teams to find out how can we make maintenance more reliable. And so, can we hear a little bit more about Selenese and your let's say role day to day, like your concerns, challenges, and what's typically at the top of mind? You did talk a little bit about it, but I'd like to hear a little bit more detail there.
0: Yeah. So, as a reliability engineer for Selenese. They separate the REs by equipment class, let's say. So for my specific role, I'm focused more on the fixed equipment side, and that's mostly due to my a- my familiarity with the API codes and, and my background and, and those kind of things. Um, I was chosen for that role. So a lot of the day-to-day is supporting operations, making sure that I'm in the loop with what trials and tribulations they're having, supporting them as they need it. Uh, if uh, management of changes come up and the process needs me to review this or that, I can do so from a fixed equipment perspective. Um, in addition to that, I, you know, do some data diving and trying to find, you know, bad actors, MTBFs, things like that to try to find root causes of some things to improve reliability in those ways. I'm very interactive with the inspection uh, department as well. I have an inspector for each unit. And so the gentleman that I work with, with that, you know, if he has finds items during his inspections, we work together to try to get those addressed as uh, quickly and efficiently as possible. And in addition to that, you know, on the softer side of things, there's some groups that I'm involved with, some volunteering I've done. They have a women's network that's amazing. And, you know, they're having a STEM event for the children and I'm running one of the booths for that and things like that. So they really make sure that you know yes, there's a focus on on the technical, but there's also a focus on the people, and that really affects the day to day and the, the resources and support and overall just vibe is is really cool there.
1: I love that so, and, and so I want to draw this back to part of the earlier conversation where you talked about how safety you you found was so critical to the industry being a part of the industry that you're involved with and it seems like when safety is front of mind there's there's a more of a positive focus from a team member perspective of making sure the equipment that you're using is safe. From your 10 years of experience, and it doesn't need to be at your current job, it could just be from from anywhere in the in the past. How would you say you've used predictive maintenance or data that's coming from predictive maintenance to basically drive productivity or drive, you know, maybe even safety? How is how is predictive maintenance being used to improve safety that you've seen from your experience?
0: I've had experience in a few different monitoring technologies that have helped out with that uh that journey so uh vibration is a good one lubrication is another one your thermography uh your circuit analysis your m c a that that sort of thing all those things basically try to help the user find the failure before it happens right which is awesome because then you don't have surprises. And the surprises lead to the accidents and possible injuries, depending on what the risk is of that particular piece of equipment. So, in my experience, I've seen it many times where what they'll do is they'll prioritize, right? They'll only put the constant monitoring equipment on your highest risk or highest, most critical pieces of equipment, and then from there, it's a lot of routes and PMs and, and things of that nature to try to get a better feel and picture of how the equipment's doing and and what kind of things need to be done to make it continue to work as as expected.
1: So how do you create that culture of like, we will plan ahead of time? For a lot of manufacturers that, I, that I've talked with is, they love this idea of predictive maintenance, but they feel that they're playing so much catch up that they never can get ahead to the point where they can plan ahead. H- how do you recommend that manufacturers create a culture around future prediction—I I guess you could say—scheduling maintenance ahead of time before maintenance schedules you. If yeah. that makes sense, you know. How do you? Yeah. How, how do you encourage companies or like? How, how do we create that culture?
0: So ultimately, my experience has shown me that it really needs to be a top-down effort. Like the leaderships at the highest levels need to understand how beneficial and how significant these conversations and processes and implementation can be to your predictive and preventive programs being successful. And then beyond that, just having a good team there that has the right experience. And if not, they're hungry to get it and, you know, and willing to work together and willing to really like, just make, make it happen. Cause I've seen places where they are just so reactive, they're so downtrodden. They're so almost beaten yeah that it's very difficult to get them to switch the mentality to all right let's get ahead of this let's not just play catch up all the time That that's because they're getting pressure from their management to go faster and make up time and then they're getting pressure from their management and then ultimately you know the operations and the company wants to make money and all that. you know and all that stuff is well and good and understandable you know from a business perspective but you really gotta you gotta take a little bit of a step back i think and just look at big picture as even more of a whole of, okay, this is what our end product we want to be, but how do we get the quality work and the quality yeah. product within that? The big thing that I
1: always think about is
0: if I'm going into my
1: day with a plan, I can perform a lot better than if I'm going into my day basically not knowing what's going to happen. Thousand percent. And, and I, think, I, I think it's one of those things from just a culture perspective of employee burnout, if you create a culture that your employee knows what they need to do to achieve that day, they're gonna perform way better than trying to put a band-aid on whatever machine went down that day just to keep the machine up running. Because let's face it, if we go into a process with a plan, we can execute that plan to the degree that we want to achieve it versus the opposite, it feels like it's a band-aid. And I, I think it's one of those things where, when you look at predictive maintenance and the, and the technology, it almost creates a routine that's structured for the company, rather than trying just to be reactive all the time. It's yeah. predictive technology is cool because it gives you information, but allows you just it allows you to plan.
0: Yeah. For sure. I mean, and not to say that the plans won't go awry, right? No shutdown yeah. ever truly starts and stops a thousand percent, or like right when it needs to, <laughs> right when it, yeah. right when you expect it to. But if you can get within closer margins, and you can get your scope done, and know what kind of things you're working with moving forward after the work, you know, is done, then those that's also something that you can plan better for for the next one. And you can do those lessons learned and, and actually make progress in, in your processes. So,
1: Absolutely.
2: All right, let's talk about your toolkit.
1: We're going to fix it. Get the tool. Pick the one right tool. The right tool for the right job.
2: Uh, so what type of software tools, for example, do you find useful managing maintenance activities and the best ways to do that, actually?
0: Um, So the tools that I've mostly used in in my career so far for any like damage mechanism analysis really is Excel, honestly, first and foremost. Uh, Your CMMS systems, getting your work order data history and all that jazz um, together. And then in addition to that, just different softwares that the contractor or the technician at the time has been given permissions to use for tracking their findings and their reports and and all that stuff, because I think a lot of that—the details that go into that—is lost in your CMMS system. You can add some of it, but uh, I don't think you would ever be able to, without bogging down the system altogether, get all of it in one place necessarily. Maybe, maybe in 50 years they'll be able to perfect that. But, but yeah, those are those are the tools that I've primarily used in my career.
1: So, for the audience that's learning the the acronyms or the abbreviations, excuse me, uh, CMMS is computerized maintenance. Management system. It's a yes. a system that's used a lot in place to help manufacturing companies manage their assets, schedule their maintenance, and track their orders. So, you know, you mentioned Excel. You know, I I think that's where a lot of manufacturers start when they're originally scaling, they don't, they don't buy into an actual software that, that that can support them. But what would you say to a a manufacturer, maybe it's a small to medium-sized manufacturer that is scheduling stuff on a whiteboard still, like by, by bullet point, <laughs> you know of, hey, this is the checklist that we have to do. And you've probably experienced that over your industry years, there's different levels of adoption of CMMS. But what would you say are some of the most valuable things that say, hey, this is why you should invest in beyond just your bullet point to-do list. Like This is what it can help create as a benefit.
0: I think a lot of that just kind of goes back to how much your leadership understands the benefit of using your reliability analysis tools and your data analysis tools, right? So yes, your lists and your whiteboards can be helpful in managing your schedules and your tasks, But then what are you going to do with that history after the fact? You're just going to let it go to the wayside and start creating the wheel again the next time around? If you can prevent doing that, it's best, right? So and then in addition to that, like, you know, making sure that it's repeatable, making sure that it's on a schedule, making sure that that schedule is followed, making sure that, uh, you know, your technicians are getting the tools that they need and the time that they need so that you can, reduce your repair times. And then, you know, ultimately, if they know the best ways to fix things and implement things, then you can overall, uh, you know, extend your mean time between failure. But if you don't know what your mean time between failure is to start with, it's hard to figure that out, too. So really, like the softwares help you quantify and justify uh, some of the more reliability centered maintenance practices that are very, you know, encouraged i guess in, the, in yeah. the reliability world
2: all right so now for our next segment the future of factory
3: meet the future to our futures
1: what future the factory my factory everybody's factory i love your
0: factory my factory my
2: walls. so this is where we would like to cover the trends we've seen across the industry and then also what we'd like to see next so anna what type of things are you looking forward to when it comes to the, the factory technology in the future? And then also, what type of impacts have you seen that you view as positive?
0: I would say the things that I think are going to be the most influential as time progresses within the industry is just how technology and AI is becoming more involved and in especially some of your big key players day-to-days. You know, we talk about all this monitoring and software and things like that, but I've seen an inspection from the fixed equipment side that they're trying to take people out of the equation as much as possible to then increase that safety and reduce the potential for injuries and fatalities and things like that, for confined spaces and things of that nature. And you you go to these conferences and you see these these cameras hooked on to these uh, drones or the, or the little dog walkers and all that things. And there's like a lot of potential for that stuff to just gain a plethora of data for then there to be an expert to go ahead and go sift through it and find all the goodies that's there, right? So I think I think as time progresses that the, the industry is probably going to go more and more that way. And so a lot of the physical labor part might be taken out, but the more intellectual technical side may get a little bit more diverse and complex. So I think that'll be really cool to see.
1: Yeah, right. I think that's what's exciting about AI is from from a lot of people, AI seems super intimidating, right? It's, it's out there. It's going to take over the world. It's going to take over jobs. But as manufacturers want to drive more information into like a CMMS, for example, AI can help, you know, filter the noise out from what is actually important, especially when they're so focused on creating predictive maintenance and creating scheduling. I think AI can create a lot of those predictive patterns over time where if we see a upward trending over time, AI can recognize those patterns a a lot better where, you know, AI, we just think of, oh my gosh, chat GPT, we can get some really cool prompts, but I think AI just can do a lot better when it comes to creating models in the space and getting this data. Manufacturers can um, leverage this technology in a lot of new ways. Mm
2: Right. And then with a lot of this new technology, we'll have, uh, I would say, an expanded workforce. So then there's going to be more diversity, people with different skill sets and things of that nature. What we like to say in my role and in our conversations is artificial intelligence isn't here to remove the human element, or we say it's not here to replace humans. But what will happen is humans with artificial intelligence will replace humans without artificial intelligence. So there's going to be new skill sets required just in the industry and And again, this lends to more diversity. So I'd love to hear your opinion uh, since we're talking about the workforce and diversity your kind of experience as a woman and your view of like the gender gaps that people traditionally talk about. And do you see that starting to basically close? Are we making progress? And what do you think uh, we should do in the future to do a better job at that? Because you did allude to you have some experience with respect to it sounds like nonprofits and different organizations as well. So I'd love to hear your take on that.
0: Yeah, yeah. So everybody's journey is unique, right? But within my own journey, what I've seen is, you know, in college, 5% of my graduating class was female engineers, right? And then nowadays, it's up to maybe 13, 15%. And you can see that reflected in the workforce as well, right? You see a lot more interns and a lot more engineers and people within the industry coming up and and doing things like like safety and operations and things where before you didn't see that quite so much and i think that we've made strides over the years in that you know it obviously that increase shows that but i think that it could be faster and it could be bigger i think you know ultimately we need to encourage girls at younger ages to be more mechanically, technically intrigued so that they want those skill- that skill set and they want to pursue those things. You know, I was, um, I was definitely an oddball even as far back as, as high school and elementary school because I loved math and science, right? I didn't want to become a nurse or, or anything like that, you know, or a teacher, which God bless those people that do that. I always was a bit more mechanically inclined. And so, you know, I think the earlier you can pique that interest, the more apt you're able to get them to to pursue those things, and the more apt you're able to encourage then the diversity through the whole process, right? So through college and through the industry, I will say, you know, uh, female leadership is is definitely also expanded. I was involved in the Society of Women Engineers in college, and I'm involved in a a woman's uh, network at Selenes now. And when I was involved in SWE, you didn't hear so much about the companies having their own women's network. And now that's becoming more and more of a a common thing. So I will say... Whereas some of the places that I've worked, you can definitely tell there's a bit more of a boys club and there's a bit more of a diversity need. Other places are really thriving and encouraging diversity and supporting diversity. And I think that as the years go on, if there can be more of those and more of that, the better off we'll be as a whole, right? Which is why, you know, I I like being a part of the community and being in the community and volunteering for things that have to do with young women, young girls, young people even. Just trying to get them interested in math and science because because I really think that especially with how technology is going and how the world is going, like, that's where the need is going to be. That's where the gaps are going to happen if we don't. I will say, you know, I've always been one to have the philosophy that respect isn't given, it's earned. And so I think that that's helped me in my career with working in a male-dominated field because I don't come into a room and automatically assume I know everything and I'm going to tell you how it is and everything. Even though my role might dictate that I have that that power, I try my very best not to abuse it. But it it is a, a, a very interesting line, too, that you, know, you want to be assertive, but you don't want to be aggressive. You want to be influential, but you don't want to be uh, naggy. You know, and and some people just based on stereotype assumptions can assume that before anything comes out of your mouth, right? So I think, Mm -hmm. I think in the in the in the cultural sense, we need to also just kind of open our minds a little bit to okay, let me not judge this person before they start telling me what their their uh, values and and things are.
1: Right, and I think with that as well, as well, you know, you highlight. The really cool opportunity that you had with being with the Society for Women Engineers in college, but you've also a lot of you're part of a lot of other professional networks even graduating. I think that's the big thing that we want to encourage more to do. When we talked earlier, you know, you, you mentioned that uh, you're part of the Society for Maintenance and Reliability Professionals (CMRP). Can you talk a little bit more about that and like what what your experience has been like being a part of professional organizations after graduating college?
0: I would say. From what I've seen, the bigger organizations like SMRP try to make smaller groups within their societies. So like even though SMRP is nationwide, you know, they have a Houston unit, they have a Ohio unit, they have a, you know, New York unit, whatever. And so like not only can you can you get involved in like the big conferences and the big picture stuff, but you can also get involved in the things locally and the regulations and the discussions that are happening just in the industries that are just right outside your back door, right? It's kind of neat in that way. I think Society of Women Engineers does well in their space, but their space is more so along the lines of let's encourage women to get into maths and sciences and and understand better what the industry wants versus what they might have and you know, kinda of bridge those gaps and make sure that they have the right uh skill sets and exposure to things that will help them be successful.
2: Anna, so you have a lot of experience, right? So you alluded to just different approaches that you take personally when it comes to like the social aspect of things. And obviously that takes experience and and mentorship and learning. But having that long, I would say history, that spark started somewhere. As you mentioned, you were always into math and physics at a young age. Do you remember that initial spark? And how can we engage younger women so that we can transition them we have that spark and transition them on that journey to being where you are now do you have any ideas on how we could do that because there's organizations attacking each part but it seems like it could be better put together and more streamlined
0: yeah i mean it depends on kind of what age so to speak as to far as like where the spark started and how it developed and how it got reignited and all that right because you go through these these phases but um You know, initially, I think for me, it really started uh, because of my relationship with my father. Both of my parents were blue-collar workers. My dad uh, repaired heating and air conditioning equipment, and my mom worked at a grocery store, right? Very Mm -hmm. stereotypical Midwestern little family. But, like, whenever I would ask questions to my dad about things involving, you know, how something worked or why he was repairing something the way that he did, he was very open about talking about what he knew and how it went together and why he was doing what he was doing. And so over the years of gleaning a little bit here and there from those open conversations, whether it be when, when I was helping him when he was repairing something or at a dinner table or you know maybe something sparked an interest at school and the teacher didn't know so I'd ask him and maybe we would look it up together and stuff like that. Like that openness really like was encouraging for me to just keep going and keep having that thirst for knowledge. And then, you know, as the years went on, you know, and I get into the industry, I think, you know, seeing other professionals being just as if not more thirsty and knowledgeable about things that I could learn about from them, and they could learn other things from me and just having those open conversations of, okay, how can we work the best together? How can we Teach each other where we're coming from, from a, not just a personal perspective, but a technical perspective. And I think you know a lot of the best mentors that I've had were the most willing to have those conversations, and not just you know brush me off because I'm an engineer, brush me off because I just don't know and I don't get it. And, and you know, but if they're willing to be like, okay, this is where I'm coming from, this is what I've seen over the past 30 years, right? I mean, the guys that really have know the good stuff have those the, those 20, 30 plus years experience that is able to reignite kind of a fire in me, sometimes even on a weekly basis, right? Because everybody has their bad days and their bad weeks. And, <laughs> yes. So, yeah. Right. <laughs> and I
1: think this goes into speak of how critical mentorship is in our industry right. and and going out there and, and for experienced people being willing to be a mentor for the future generation, for the young people in the industry, and then for the young people in the industry, going out and searching and asking, I want to be mentored, I want to be invested in. I think it's just, it's so critical.
0: For sure, So, for
1: sure. so let's move into our final segment as, as we wrap things up and, and that's the Fix It Funnies. The
3: fix is in. It's making a really funny noise. gonna fix it. Make it funny would be great if you could make it funny. Your fate is fixed.
1: So make it funny. Make sure it's funny. You know, before we say goodbye, Anna, with, with your story and, and sharing all that stuff, we're going to have a couple of just fun wrap-up questions just, just as takeaways. So these are kind of the the would-you-rather um, that, you know, you got asked when you're traveling in the car for a long road trip. So would you rather have squeaky work boots or jiggling keys all day when you're walking on the manufacturing floor doing predictive maintenance?
0: Oh, my goodness. I think due to frequency, I'd prefer the keys. I think the squeak would get on my nerves. It would start grinding my gears a little
1: bit. (laughs) I I totally get that. Would you rather have a building with no air conditioning
0: or a building with no heat? Oh, having experienced both, lived in the Midwest and lived in Texas, I'd say no heat. You can always put layers on. You can't always take those layers off. (laughs) (laughs)
1: For sure. That is is the truth. (laughs)
2: So I do have one. It's in the same realm, but it's a little bit technical. So you're currently working with fixed assets. Do you prefer to work with fixed assets or rotating assets?
0: That's a really good question. I am actually okay with working with both. I don't really have a preference one way or the other. I just have, by happenstance, gained more experience in the fixed arena just because um, of the uh, emphasis on the API code certifications and maintaining Hmm. those versus letting some of those rotating level one certifications kind of drop off. But I, I think both yeah, are yeah. fascinating. I think both can definitely learn some things about the equipment, you know, using those the the philosophies and techniques that are associated with them and, and really get some good stuff done.
2: Awesome. awesome. I do want to ask you, so are you watching any shows that you are you're into or are you reading any specific books and things of that nature
0: let's see what am i reading so i I tend to read i tend to go back and forth between the fantasy realm and (laughs) self-help those two (laughs) veins for whatever reason are kind of my jam so uh the self-help uh side of things i'm reading a book by jay shetty called the eight rules of love or something like that which is really helpful because he talks about you know, not only just the interactions and relational things between, you know, romantic couples, but also you can translate it to friendships, or you can translate it to families. It's just about basically having better communication around love and showing love and, and all that kind of thing, which can be a challenge sometimes. Um, and then on the other side of that, uh, I'm actually on Netflix. There's a show called The Witcher, which I highly recommend. And they just yes. came out with a new season. It Season is. Three, it's pretty good. It is very good. Yeah. Skippy three.
1: I love it. Awesome. Well, Anna, thanks so much for joining us on the show. We really appreciate the knowledge, the insight, the passion you have for, for getting more women in our industry, but also the passion that you have for maintenance and driving new technology and predictive maintenance. And thank you for all the listeners who, who listen to today's show. I'm Jake Hall, along with my co-host, David Lee, and you just listen to The Maintainers, of Blue Cap Community podcast. And of course, don't forget to subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast for the next episode. Thanks.
3: This podcast is brought to you by Traction. Traction offers streamlined hardware and software solutions designed to make maintenance more reliable and profitable. Their AI-powered condition monitoring and asset management solution predicts machine failures and unplanned downtime, allowing clients to save an average of $10 million every trimester. It's artificial intelligence quarterbacking your maintenance.